Bruce Whitfield's Genius Podcast in partnership with Lexus. Subscribe now to your favorite podcast app. Construction sites are typically noisy, dusty, and chaotic. Certainly not everyone's idea of a fantastic playground. Traditionally, the site is home away from home for architects who tend to remain with the project from conceptualization to completion to make sure that the entire vision is delivered upon and ultimately that the client who pays the bills is happy. It's dusty, hard, arduous work. Now, imagine building an architectural design business in one of the most beautiful cities on earth that deals with doing just the fun stuff, the creative spark, the stuff that makes your heart sing. Today's story is precisely about that. And perhaps may jog your own thinking. If it can happen in architecture, it can happen in other industries too. Today's story is going to blow your mind. This is the story of Seota. The firm has delivered thousands of architectural design projects from family homes in cities around the world to office blocks in Senegal and Nigeria to Indian Ocean Island resorts to developments in Turkey and even an entire yacht club in China. It's completed projects on every permanently inhabited continent and in more than 90 countries around the world. The genius, well, it's done it without ever having to leave home. Seota is a Cape Town-based design consultancy with a team of nearly 400 people delivering everything to their elite customer base that they could ever dream of and more. Seota is a partnership between founder Stefan Anthony. He rose to huge fame and acclaim in the 1990s and early 2000s as he broke the mould of what most people thought was possible in architecture. He was joined over the years by the likes of Philip Ormesdal and Greg Truen, whose initials make up the company name. But the list of talent extends to other names recognised as luminaries of design and architecture around the world. Philip Fouchet, Mark Boulevard, Roxanne Kay and Logan Gordon, amongst others. But if we included all of their names, the business cards would be too big and everyone would have to be included in the company ID. Our teacher took us to university and with intention of taking us to the engineering faculty. And uh, when we arrived at UCT, the only building that had lights on was the architectural faculty. So we went there to ask where's the engineering faculty. And I remember we walked into the studio and the studio was like incredible. There were models and drawings and people and people smoking, you know what they were smoking. And all these naked women and men on the walls, because they did life drawing in first year, it was the first year studio. And this was like incredible. I, then we left the building. I don't remember anything after that. I don't remember the engineering building at all. So when it came to making that decision, that flash of like, wow, Vasti is this creative, like uh, hippie, crazy creative environment. So that was the only thing that I was aware of that kept me like, yeah, yeah, I want to do this. I want to do this. That's Stefan Anthony, founder of Sayota. Ian Lowe was a contemporary at the UCT School of Architecture. Stefan definitely stood out in the school as somebody who was completely focused. I would say everything he did was deliberate, it was considered, and he had incredible discipline. It's almost, he didn't know what he was going to become, but he knew he was going to become something. And I think that underpinned a lot of his engagement with the university. 
he graduated with a first class with distinction, particularly in design. He definitely stood out in that sense. Architectural firms are ten a penny. Stefan Anthony began, as all jobbing graduates do, converting garages to bedrooms, attaching a bathroom to a suburban home, that sort of thing. But quite early on, he realised that he needed to think differently about what he was delivering and how he could leverage the business of architecture. Over time, a particular design ethos emerged. Impossible-looking spans of cantilevered concrete allowing for unprecedented levels of light and space inside the structures that he and his team create. Possibly more impressive than the structures themselves, however, is how the firm has globalised and taken its designs to the world. Nick Kutso is the director of the first independent African School of Architecture and has been watching the evolution of what Stefan Anthony has built and cannot help but be impressed. There's definitely something in how they went into high-end projects in Africa and maximized that. Also, I think maybe Cape Town itself as a context, nothing's more scenic than Say to houses, beautiful houses set against some majestic mountainscape. So I, I imagine there might have been something about the special kind of place that Cape Town is that helps bring them into that kind of global reach. Cape Town has provided an extraordinary backdrop to the group's designs and the partners found themselves being taken all over the world on large projects which took them away from their families for extended periods of time. What happened next was a technological revolution which, coupled with a collapse in projects at home in the midst of the global financial crisis, led to the team thinking differently about how their vision could be delivered upon. What if, they wondered, they could just do the conceptualization and design of the projects, then hand those over to architects of record in the countries and cities where the work would be completed to the very rigorous standards they demanded of themselves. And that epiphany changed everything. Suddenly, the traditional architectural model was turned on its head and the business was able to grow at an unprecedented rate. Come with me to Gardens in Cape Town and the headquarters of Sayota, it's housed in a converted church with the majesty of Table Mountain in the background and get an insight as to how it all happened with Stefan Anthony. The company has evolved and it's way beyond me personally, which is such a privilege for me to say that the thing is bigger than me. But I suppose when I first started out, it was the mid-80s, quite messy time in South Africa Quite a messy time in architecture in the world. In fact, when I said that I wanted to study architecture, and that was 1979, 1980, and I said to my friends, it was like, architecture? Like, what? Only losers go do architecture. And it's like, okay, well, whatever. But that's what I want to do. Architecture wasn't cool at all. I mean, today, design and architecture, and actually design in every aspect, whether it's the furniture or the computer equipment or the iPhone or the this or the that design is a huge part of life and people appreciate good design and good design has great value. So those early years, yeah, sure. When I came out of Vasti, I came into a depressed economic environment, depressing because the architecture that was being done was really, really average and dull and dark. And heavy. It was the antithesis yeah. of everything you've subsequently created. No, actually, awful time. And and I, I somehow always managed to pick up little private jobs. So hitchhiking from Vasti, I'd get in a car. By the time I got to town, 
the person had already put me in contact with two or three people and there were little ga- garage alterations, but, you know, the little shopping mall and a little a decent-sized house and things like that. So within a year, I went on my own and uh, of, of finishing varsity, and I suppose I was totally naive, and I had this vision of, like, doing exciting things, so I did it. Uh, the engineers sometimes kind of, like, were a bit scared I could it work, and it's like, but of course you can make it work, you're an engineer. And they made it work, and they're still standing to this day. So quite quickly, the buildings that I designed became noticed. And at the time, I was into curves because I discovered Oscar Niemeyer, Brazilian, who was like, wow, incredible. And it was like a similar kind of climate to South Africa. It was modern. So those buildings had a presence. And of course, they feed themselves because people see it they talk about it the phone starts ringing so we we actually grew fairly quickly and then along the way my partners joined me so Greg True and and Philip Omsall from Durban they joined me and you know and then it became more diverse and more exciting because I had great people that I could debate projects and then we moved a lot more away from curves to more structured linear buildings to stronger architecture in the sense of the cantilevers and the span-free structure. And then further partners joined Philippe Fouchet, Mark Boulevant, Logan Gordon, now Roxanne Kay. And all of these people, for me, I love working with people. I'm a bit impatient. So I love the big idea. I love the rah-rah. And I want to see an incredible product. But I'm not the person that's going to go there fixing the final screw in position and lining. I mean, I'll, I'll see that something's right or wrong and, and I'll freak out if it's not, but but I'm not the person that's going to do it. I, I, I need this lovely team around me where everybody has their speciality and their strengths. And the, some people are the ideas people. Some people are the, the, the holder together. Some people are the finishing touches. How do you yeah. define a design ethos? Though? Because, I mean, the Porsche 911 has evolved minusculely over time, yet you compare the first Porsche 911 with the Porsche 911 today, and they're fundamentally different vehicles, but they are noticeably a Porsche 911. How do you have the Seota ethos? What brings it together? Because no matter whether you look at a at a development in Bodrum or a ski chalet in Switzerland or a project in Miami or a project in Cape Town, there is a very clear common golden thread that links all of them. Yeah, there is. And it's something that we don't have a formula and we don't have a design guidebook or anything like that. We just have a lot of very talented design people working. Like we, we actually use the words, we, we, we are studio of studios. And what I mean by that is that we, we have the group leaders who are the partners. And then within those, there are these studios and they are really like, project team studios but I think everybody speaks a similar language and instead of pulling away or pulling sideways they're always pushing together and they try to improve on what has been done so you're always moving forward and and we always insist on moving forward and we do sometimes make a comment it is overtly so to generic which is like a negative criticism Whereas we say that, okay, it's too similar to what we've done before. It's nice. It's very competent, but you haven't broken ground. So come push and break ground because again, don't forget that whatever 
you do successfully. And it's not as if we are doing something totally unique. I think maybe we're doing something very slightly better than many other people. But that slight better is being recognized and, and is a little bit distinctive. But there are a lot of very, very good designers in the world. So they're really up behind you and pushing you or some ahead of you. And you've got to be on your toes and you've got to keep on pushing. And when a little bit too much of something starts appearing as it does, because now with the internet, everything is instant, you've got to be nimble enough to quickly start dancing sideways or just move a little bit around. So in those crit sessions, and, and we spend a lot of time critting each other's work and being open to criticism, positive criticism, it's all about taking something that we are really doing well and enriching it and making it that bit better. But they're common themes. So big spans of concrete. You like raw concrete. There's a lot of glass allowing the light in, taking you back to crack off. And yeah, the yeah, cathedral yeah. and yeah. those shards of light. Light's very important. And natural materials. There's a huge amount of yeah. wood. which Honesty, rawness. Yeah, absolutely. We maybe term it a little bit differently. We will talk, instead of glass, we'll say void. Instead of concrete, we'll say mass. Because for us, we strive for, and this is still part of, we early in this journey, that our buildings are as sculptural as possible. So you've got to be able to abstract it into solid and void. Um, and solid is the mass, whether it's a horizontal or carved or shaped form. And then the void is really where the glass will go. And then we always try to, in, in the especially residential projects, if you can get the glass to disappear into the solid, okay, you then really, on a good day at least, can experience that solid void experience. So like my house, for example, people sometimes come to it to, to the main living level and they ask, but how do you live in winter? I don't see any doors here. And it's like, yeah, well, you don't see it because it's hidden there and hidden there and hidden there. And it's like, oh, okay, wow, wow, wow. But the house feels very different to when the glass doors are in the closed position and you see all the mullions and the glass and everything, to when it's totally open and it's seamless and it just virtually floats in space and it draws the exterior to the interior. So there are, I suppose, approaches and attitudes towards design that are in our culture and the people who in design in our company do well I suppose the people that pick that up quite quickly and then South start Africa working what, with it and start improving of that. global GDP. It's a tiny economy with a very, very small potential market for your designs. At what point did you realize that this was not going to be the market for Seota in perpetuity? It couldn't be the only market. There were only a limited number of properties you could ever design and, and bring to fruition in this, in this environment. We didn't come to any realization uh, consciously from the point of view. We never planned it. We were very lucky in that um, in the 2000s, the, the early years then. Oh, actually, no, no, no. We had a few overseas jobs in the late 90s, but nothing major. But, but we started doing some overseas work. We got quite a lot of exposure to working in quite complex environments in Africa, Western Africa, Nigeria, Senegal, Ivory Coast. In 2008, when the markets crashed, sure, suddenly three quarters of our projects dried up. And there was like, for a few days, 
there was this doom and gloom in the office and it was like, my gosh, okay, this is a disaster. And suddenly the phone started ringing from all over the world. And I think our timing was just coincidentally spot on. We had just started publishing some projects on the internet. We got featured on a couple of blog sites. And that wasn't really even done with the intention of, oh, we got to reach out to the overseas market. We just did it because we had the projects that had just recently been completed. Internet was there. It was like, of course, now we package it properly. We put it out there. Maybe we had a little bit of extra time to actually focus on those things. And then next minute, the phone started ringing and our international market really just took over. And today we, I think it was at 97% overseas. I think it's even higher than that now. And that wonderful opportunity, which was seized and capitalized upon in those early days. I mean, you must have been going to projects yourself and going to see if it was a, a house in Los Angeles, for example. You would have gone and inspected the site physically in person and understood the lay of the land, met the client in person, understood who the contractors were. It must be a huge amount of effort to begin that globalization process. So that wasn't a globalization process, but project by project basis. But finding people to work with. How did you begin to break ground, literally, in those early days? I think we quite quickly realized that you can't oversee projects overseas because it's just far too complex and you can't stretch yourself. So quite quickly, we actually realized that our model must be that we are the designers, that we find very good local architects that we work with and they will oversee the project. And not everywhere you can because in Western Africa, you won't find a lot of architects that are available for that. But in America, Australia, um, Europe, we, we have incredible architects of record. In fact, surprisingly, when we say this, people find this fascinating that our fee on the project is lower than the architect of record. And, and that is because our period on the project, our active period on the project is, of course, much shorter and it's more linear. And the architect of record then takes over our very, very detailed drawings. But of course, they've got to get planning permission They've got to prepare the final construction drawings and then they've got to oversee the building site. So their fees are higher than ours and they are a crucial part and we very often include them in all the media recognition once a project is done. And, and we have lovely ongoing relationships with all these firms because they are a crucial part of our success. And, and in many cases, we find younger, hungrier firms so for them, it's a wonderful opportunity as well. It's a lovely stepping stone for them. They learn a lot from us because we've got very organized and clear systems. And they're thrilled when the projects get featured. How do you protect your intellectual property? How do you protect the design ethos that you've created based out of Cape Town, which you've exported across the world, which you then hand over to third parties to deliver the projects on your behalf? What stops them from going, that's great, Stefan. Thank you so much for that. And going off and doing mini-me's all over the place. There are two sides that. First of all, our system sides, we are very protective over because that's taken millions and probably hundreds of thousands of man hours, persons hours to organize. So that we are very precious about. So when anybody starts copying our systems, we are quite aggressive about that. But from a design point of view, look, we all, all are borrowing from each other as architects. There are very, very few absolutely original architects. There are, and Le Corbusier, and Mies van der Rohe, and, and some of the geniuses, they are. 
And in fact, even today, Zaha Hadid, she's passed away, of course, but those are absolute groundbreakers and they really are the geniuses. But in the world that we are in, we are learning, people are learning from us. And I suppose all you've got to do is just stay ahead. So don't complain when people are copying you, just come up with some new ideas and be fresher. Yeah, so there is a bit of pressure in the office that we always need to stay one step ahead because I even know some architect and I've had friends tell me that, oh, I popped into somebody's studio and on their table, their drawing board were all images from your website and they designing a project and they got about 12 or 15 of your projects. And like, aren't you upset? And I said, sure, what a compliment and good luck to them. And hopefully they do a brilliant building and maybe even better than the one that they were being inspired or the ones that they were being inspired by because they all inspire us back. I suppose you can't control artistry and the artistic elements of, of design. Coming up on Bruce Whitfield's Genius Podcast. There was this power struggle, as there very often is between interior decorators and architects because one of them wants to assert their influence. So we would design quite a modern building and next minute there'll be curtains with swags and tails and everything. It's like, oh my gosh. So then we offered the service for free. Like we all do the interior for free. And then we realize after a while, sure, we're doing a hell of a lot of work and the clients love it, but you know, we, we're losing money. What defines genius? A brilliant mind? Unsurpassed ambition? Perhaps Lexus believes it's about something different. Authenticity. This lies in the ability to follow that one thing that drives you, that one true part of who you are. That is the root of genius. And that's the authenticity you experience when you're behind the wheel of a Lexus. It's just one way that Lexus makes luxury personal. Book a test drive at your nearest Lexus dealer and experience amazing. And if you want to see how I experienced amazing with the brand new Lexus RX350 recently, Click on the link in the podcast blurb. Talk to me about what exists here in gardens in Cape Town in terms of the fact that here at the southern tip of Africa, 97% of your work is beyond the country's borders. It's an astonishing mindset to try and get into. Explain. Yeah. Okay. So at the moment we are in, I think it's about 86 countries and about 143 or 44 cities around the world. And six continents, we haven't cracked Antarctica yet, but we're working on that one. But uh, so we, we had over the years tried having satellite offices in Durban, Johannesburg, Dubai, and we struggled with that because just being together in Cape Town, even though we're still working remotely from home at the moment, which is kind of bizarre. So there are two sides to this thing. So let me just say, so when we tried these satellite offices, they really struggled. And in the end, we actually decided, no, hold it, hold it. The, the model must be that we are designers only. Even in South Africa, like outside the Cape Town center and the few suburbs just around Cape Town, if we do a project, we already insist on an architect of record. Because for us to even do a project in Stellenbosch or Paul, the travel time and the overseeing time it just doesn't make it worthwhile for us. And we actually start losing on projects like that. So to compensate that, then we've got to push our fees up. And in the end, we just say to clients, do you know what? The good young firms, let them be the architects of record. We're the designers. And we've done many like this successfully. And of course, around the world, 
that is the only way of working. So now what we could do is that we could concentrate our efforts into design. So we do three stages, but the main two stages are design concept and then design development. Now we take the stage design development to a very, very high standard because when we first started out, we would send full sets of drawings, but then the architects of record would keep on asking us questions and phoning us and everything. So we then up that whole stage where it's incredibly visual, very three-dimensional, even virtual reality of all kinds, to the point where we said, if there's anything you have to ask us, it means that you are not aware of what we've given you, to the point where the phone stopped ringing, saved us a huge amount of time, and they were very empowered, totally empowered, to manage that project. But how do you do that? There's a hillside with a gradient with a substrata that you can't see from here. You don't know the local geology. You don't understand the full aspect of this, the light, for example. How do you sit in Cape Town and deliver that project? It's a very detailed, in-depth process that you have to go through. Over the last two years, of course, we have not been able to visit as many sites as we normally do. But of course, if you're working in Dubai or Saudi Arabia where it's a sand, it doesn't really make much difference. But on more complex sites, the very complex sites you do have to visit and personally be there and feel the sites. I'd say majority of sites, you can get very, very detailed information these days. And that information, it's uh, full-on surveys, three-dimensional surveys, which we then can put into our systems, put our headsets on, and walk around the site in virtual reality. And in fact, if you walk a site in virtual reality, you get a far better feel of it because you can walk on the ground, you can walk 10 meters above the ground, you can walk 500 meters above the ground. So you start getting a far better feel of the lay of the land, including trees and rocks and things like that. So the point I w wanted to come back to, I said there are two sides of it. Technology has allowed us to do something today that probably three or four years ago we were not able to do. On the one hand, technology allows us not to really even have to, although we do prefer to, visit most sites because you get such detailed information that by the time you've analyzed it, you are fully, fully aware of the context that you're working in. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, what is fascinating was about three and a half years ago, we tried to work remotely. We had people that were overseas or people that were not in Cape Town, and our architectural software and the, and the models we work in are very, very complex and very heavy. So the computer systems just couldn't handle it. So we tried, we tried the cloud, it failed. And then about two or three months before COVID, we tried it again and it worked. So we then implemented it, like a small version of it. So when COVID hit, it was like we had already tried it. It already started working. So we just virtually over one weekend expanded it to the whole office. So on a Friday, we said, everybody, okay, you go home, take your computer, your chair, etc., And we'll have you set up on Saturday and on Monday we'll be working and other than maybe two or three or four people, that's what happened. And that same way of working 
is what allows us to work around the world. And in a funny way, it's actually more efficient today because like, I've come to meet you now, but now I had to drive from the house in traffic and come here and probably have a coffee afterwards and things like that. In Teams, 12 o'clock, we'll connect up and at a certain time we've finished. Actually, lots of other aspects that are more efficient. Of course, there's the big downside in that you know, to physically meet a person is quite different to meeting them virtually. Yep. Your business model would be unworkable. Three and a half years ago, our model would not have succeeded. It only works today as efficiently as it does because technology has improved. And we've always realized technology is so, so powerful. So we've always been, I think, at the forefront. And any new ideas, we see how we can incorporate them and use them because we see how they work so much. I mean, today... We are able to produce work, I don't know, I don't, I don't know how many times faster than we were 25, 30 years ago. But it's like multiple times. But you must see that then in terms of the exponentiality of the growth of the enterprise. Because you start off as a sole operator 30 years ago. And over time, partners come and partners go. Teams come and teams grow. And this building in gardens in Cape Town... It's got space for probably what, 300 people or thereabouts across three or four floors. What is in here? Yeah, okay, two things. Number one, we were about to expand the office because we needed more space. And now we realize that we don't have to anymore because a large part of the office are working from home. So then we had to reinvent this space because it's a what, four or five-story building. It used to be an old church. And we kept most of the hall and then we just extended the hall upwards and put in floors. So this is the center point of SOTA. I mean, everything happens through here now. It all used to happen in here, but now it all happens through here. So we still have a good number of admin people here. We have certain departments who choose to rather work together. So like media department and IT, they are located here. Most of the architects and the admin people work from home still. You know, surprisingly, about two and a half years ago, three years ago, we, we realized that the office culture was so important and retaining staff was good staff was so important that we built the most amazing canteen that I'll take you down to just now. But we really put love and money and attention into it. And it really just bonded the whole office. Everybody loves that space. And people used to work longer to have supper there and meet their friends there and, and have meetings there and everything. And then, sadly, COVID hit and we all dispersed and everybody seemed to kind of manage from home and to, 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 to a large extent thrive from home because now they were with their kids, so there was less travel time and with teams and interaction, we, we had very efficient uh, collaboration and meetings so we didn't put any pressure on anybody coming back to the office, but we did surveys along the way, like, when do you guys want to come back? And there wasn't a lot of take. Now, slowly, I think people are just getting a little bit tired of the same environment where you live and, and work. So now we have a nice trickle of people coming back to the office. But at the same time, it's allowed us to employ people not in Cape Town. And some people who moved from their families to Cape Town to work for us are now back with their families and they're thrilled and we would have lost them otherwise. 
Yeah, so this building, which is a very special building, and I mean the views, as you can see, are spectacular of Table Mountain and Devil's Peak and Lion's Head. This is the the home, the beehive, but the bees are out flying. So then every once in a while they come back in and drop off their pollen and their honey and whatever bees do. But you've got three businesses inside this four or five-story building. Yeah. Um, one is a furniture design business. One is an interior design business. And another is the building design, the architecture business, yeah, if you yeah. like, across three floors. It's a holistic solution, I suppose. If somebody's got $100 million to spend on a project, because that's kind of where you pitch these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They can come here and it can all be designed. Absolutely, here, yeah. And then delivered wherever it needs to be delivered in collaboration with the architects of record. Take me through the process. Yeah. I win the lottery and yeah. I decide I want I'm a property. Holding thumbs for you there. <laughs> going to buy a yeah. market first. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'd like a property in the south of France where I know yeah, yeah. If you have built properties before and I would like it dripping down a mountain as you do um, so effectively in Cape Town down the Atlantic seaboard. I'd like something like that, yeah. please. What would happen? Well, okay. First of all, actually so much of what we've done happened as a result of either challenge at the time. So like, for instance, we designed the first number of houses and then the clients brought in the interior decorators who had a totally different feel. And there was this power struggle as there very often is between interior decorators and architects because one of them wants to assert their influence. and take. So it, uh, we designed quite a modern building and next minute there'll be curtains with swags and tails and everything. It's like, oh my gosh. So then we offered the service for free. Like we all do the interior for free. And then we realized after a while, sure, we're doing a hell of a lot of work and the clients love it, but you know, we, we're losing money. So then we started charging a little bit for that. And then next minute we realized, oh, that this is a serious business. And that's how Arc became the company it is today. And, and that's the interior side. At the same time, it was very difficult to get really good furniture. Innovation was, was probably the, the only one real company in Cape Town at the time that had decent furniture. So we started designing furniture for the homes. And then we realized the same thing. Oh, there's a lot of work that goes into this for very little benefit. So why don't we create our own little range? And next minute, we created the store called Ochre. Um, so, so that's how these ideas grew. And today... There are many clients. In fact, we have a few uh, hospitality client groups, and I unfortunately can't mention that. I'd love to. It's like on, the, on, on <laughs> my the tongue, but I'm not allowed to say it, but the top, top hotel brands in the world, and they employed us because they said they want a holistic package. They want the same architects, interior designers, and if you can do the furniture as well, that it is this one ethos and mindset and language that's what they really wanted and that's what we do provide we don't always win the interiors on projects we don't always supply well we'd never supply all the furniture from ochre because it's got a fantastic range but you want a lot more diversity in your interior than just one brand but there are many many projects where all three brands work incredibly wonderfully together and there could be architectural firms around the world who come to you and say we need your interior design expertise on this one yes yes oh absolutely projects for others so you're not wedded to doing work 
only for yourself yeah. and for your own project. There's an independence of thought and of the ability to outsource and be outsourced. Yeah, absolutely. We're very, very lucky there or blessed there. California, we're very busy there. We have, I don't know, probably over 40 projects now. But those are the Sota projects. So those are architectural projects. And ARC has also double-digit number project. And many of those are local architects that have chosen ARC in South Africa to do the interiors, which for us is like even more of a wow. And so there's this wonderful confluence of events. You develop an expertise, you develop a design ethos. And I suppose your earliest international clients would have been travelers to South Africa who would have seen what you were doing and they would have hung out in the areas where your projects were on display because there is no greater billboard than the finished structure and would have made contact that way. Things got a little bit ropey in 2008, but suddenly people realized it wasn't the end of the world and life would continue and property as an asset class and particularly high-end property is always sought after and the phone keeps ringing. It coincides with the evolution of the internet and acceptance of internet and broadband more and more widely. And suddenly, four or five years ago, technologies evolved to a point where globalized operations are a reality. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's like... It's like um I suppose it's being in the right place at the right time. And ready. And ready. And ready to act. Absolutely. Because you, you've, you, you've summed it up perfectly. That's Stefan Anthony, founder of Sayota, taking the ethos of design developed in Cape Town to the world. Bruce Whitfield's Genius Podcast in partnership with Lexus. Subscribe now to your favorite podcast app. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can see me experience amazing in the brand new Lexus RX350 by clicking on the link in the blurb of this episode. Go on. You know you want to.